Today is May 1st, 2016. The title of today's sermon is External Foes and Internal Woes. External Foes and Internal Woes. Good to have you back, Gabriel. Glad you're safe from all your travels. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Let's start in verse 1. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship. What an interesting combination of things to receive, right? (laughs) Paul is speaking, he's saying, we've received grace and apostleship. We've received the charis, the Greek word there is charis, and we've received this ability to be able to be sent out to do what God has called us to do. To call people from among all the Gentiles. How many Gentiles do we have in the house? That's probably most of us, right? If you're not a Jew, you're the Gentiles. Through Him and for His namesake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. There is no other type of obedience that the Lord is seeking. It's obedience through faith. Um, We had an incredible time. I've I've heard some great testimonies of the prison this morning. We had our first ever baptism in prison this morning with the trustees. Amen? Judah, I, I know I didn't tell you, but can you give like a 30 second uh, testimony about that? Give, a, give everybody a word about that. Amen. So they have put us in a certain pod, in a certain wing of the prison for a long time, for years. And just recently, within about, uh, pardon me if my timing is a little off, but about the last six weeks or so, they've changed that because (laughs) we've kind of infiltrated that whole other wing, the C pod, and now they moved our church to the B pod. And so as you're praying and going through the week, if you think about a B pod, (laughs) if you think about prison, would you pray for the B-Pod? Because this is what's going on there. Amen. They're starting to see breakthrough. Uh, it is, it's, they're tilling the soil. They're breaking up hard ground. People are now laying hands on other people and watching them get filled with the Spirit and prophesy. This is what the working of the kingdom does. Amen. The trustees that they got to baptize. They, I, 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 don't mean to make, uh, I, I don't mean to keep going back to it, but this, that's a huge thing. Never in the history, as far as we know, at least of our ministry there, have they requested and allowed a performance of a baptism there on site with the trustees. Incredible thing. Incredible what the Lord is doing. Um, Let's turn to Judges chapter 6. This is going to be the primary text for us today. We'll branch out and do a lot of other scriptures, but this will be kind of our home base, is Judges chapter 6. (laughs) 
I'm going to share with you something today that I've never seen before. So anytime that happens as I'm studying, as I'm researching things, and the Lord shows me something, my first thought is, Lord, I hope I say this right. Because it's new enough in my thoughts, it's new enough in my heart, that I hope that I can communicate it to you the way the Lord communicated it to me this morning. Um, we're going to start in Judges chapter 6. Uh, I've spoke about Gideon before. This is the, this is the text of Gideon. Um, I'm going to actually try to skip over most of the stuff that, that I know I've covered here before. I remember before I, I came here, we moved here to Houston. I think I came through. We might have still been in a, in a garage somewhere, maybe on Mesquite. And, uh, and I remember the Lord moved on my heart to preach on Gideon there. And this was years and years ago. So I feel like I've done it. And, and uh, I encourage you, if, if I skip over a part of the story that you're unfamiliar with, we're all big boys and girls. You can start in Judges 6 and you can read this for yourself because I want to highlight some things that I feel like the Lord highlighted to me. Let's start in, start in Judges 6 and verse 25. Okay, so this is after we find out that Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, we're not familiar with probably threshing wheat or a wine press, right? You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. What do you do in a wine press? You press wine, right? You thresh wheat on a threshing floor. But he's trying to do this to hide from the enemies that are around God's people. An angel comes up to him and says, Hey, mighty man of valor. Yeah, the guy hiding. Yep, yep, I'm talking to you. We're going to call you a mighty man of valor, and this is what we're going to have happen. And he goes through, and then this is verse 25. The same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar... What's a proper kind of altar? One with uncut stones that are stacked one on top of each other. Kind of like us. Our lives, we are, the Bible says in the New Testament and Peter that we are stones. We're living stones. And we're supposed to be getting assembled exactly the way that God intends. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Um, the moniker, the motto of our church. We are life-changing ministries, one life, one family, one nation. Okay, so you're going to have to say that with me. I was presuming everyone would jump in with all the excitement that you had. Apparently, we need more coffee this morning. It's okay. Okay, so we're life-changing ministries, one life, one family, one nation. Okay, you're going to actually see this exact model here through Gideon. He's saying, Gideon, you have to get right. In the verses before this, Gideon gets right. He realizes after a while that he's talking to an angel after he brings the offering to him. And he's like, whoa, it's an angel. I might die. You've been talking to him for a while now, right? And then the angel says, don't worry, you're not going to die. So he says, Gideon, you have to get your life right. Immediately, the very next thing that Gideon has to do is start dealing with the idols in his family's life. He immediately says, you've got to go cut down your father's uh, altars to Baal and the Asherah pole. Verse 27. So, David, uh, so Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than the daytime. <laughs> Amen. Have you ever, the Lord told you to do something, but you're really kind of afraid to do it? I think Gideon is one of the most encouraging people in the Bible to me. He's one of my favorite. Uh, well, I say that. He's one of my favorite today, I guess, right? Uh, I love Daniel because he's such this pillar of integrity. He does right. He only gets caught by things that he did 
because they were righteous. That's the only way that you could catch Daniel. Uh, I think of other people and I go through, but Gideon, I like something about him because he reminds me of me. You know, Daniel is somebody that I can aspire to. Gideon, I'm like, oh, I can relate to that guy. You're a mighty man of valor and you're scared and hiding. Go do what I tell you to do. I'll go do it, but I'm going to do it at night where no one can see me. Because it's much safer. Less. Now, I don't know about you. I felt that way. I've done that before the Lord. The Lord has told me to do something, and I did it, but it was in the most scaredy-cat kind of way possible. Faith, great faith was not rising up in me as I boldly went out and declared. I was like, okay, God told me to do this, so I'm going to get some people around me to help me out. He took ten of his servants, and I'm going to go do this. But you know what? The Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious to us because he won't allow that to be acceptable in your life. It's not just good enough that you're going to do. It's not just good enough that you have an external foe. In this case, it was the uh, obliteration of the altars to Baal. It's not just good enough that you do exactly what he says. On the external foe, you have to deal with the internal woes that you have along the way. You have to deal with both because if you don't deal with both, there's, there's parts that are left undone. And here's, what the, here's how the Lord deals with it in Gideon. Verse 28. In the morning when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished. Everybody say demolished. demolished. Yeah. Go ahead, man. Out in the middle of the night when no one was looking. You demolished that thing. With the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. He did everything that God told him to do. And verse 29, they asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. They're in the middle of the night. This is not like they have, uh, you know, night vision cameras. They don't have street lights as somebody saw them sneaking around the back of the property or floodlights that come on when, when, with motion sensors. How are they going to know? God made sure that they knew. They went out and did it, and there was just 10 men, 11 men with Gideon. They went out and did this, and God was going to make sure that the things that are supposed to be exposed, they're exposed. You could try to hide it. You can try to do what God wants you to do and be kind of secretive about it. But if you're really going to walk with what he has, you can't just beat the external foes. You've got to beat the internal woes as well. Verse 30, the men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die. Well, I guess Gideon was right in his assessment, wasn't he? You could look at that and be like, well, that's probably why he did it at night. <laughs> Hello. I mean, I'm just being practical. Okay, well, let's see how God does, deals with this. Bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. These are, these are people who are supposed to be righteous in and of themselves. And they're mad because he broke the rules of the unrighteousness. <laughs> you cut down Baal's altar. Yeah, you should have been the ones cutting it down. And you're the ones that built it up. Listen to it. This is Gideon's father, Joash, replied to the hostile crowd around him. Are you going to plead Baal's case? Are you going to try to save him? Whoever fights for him, meaning Baal, should be put to death by morning. Whose altar did Gideon destroy? Yeah, it was, Baal, it was an altar to Baal, but whose altar was it? It was Joash's altar. Gideon got his life right, and even though he didn't fulfill it quite all the way right, God is bringing it to the surface. And who defends Gideon but his father, who had the altar and the Asherah pole. When Gideon cut it down, there was something that must have come alive in Joash that said, surely that is righteousness and what I was doing was not. 
We think sometimes that when we have to confront somebody, we're worried about losing a relationship, we're worried about all these things, and the truth is, is you very well may set them free by you encountering them. We fear a lot of things. We are fearful people. It's, it's no wonder that the Bible compares us with sheep. You guys seen the little, what are they called, myotonic goats? Yeah. Run along and you just scare them. They go, ooh! <laughs> just, ah! They, they're, all their muscles, their whole body just tenses up and they like faint. If you haven't seen it, please go to YouTube. Because <laughs> it's the funniest thing ever. You know, and they're just running around and, and I, the problem is, is I can relate to that. It doesn't even sometimes take a real enemy to come up against me. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> the Bible says in Proverbs that the righteous are as bold as lions, but the wicked flee though no one pursues them. Our kids, um, we, we don't watch, uh, we don't have cable or anything, but we do sometimes get together and watch Netflix. Not a, I'm not in my... Uh, admonishing you to do this. I'm just telling you what we do in our house. And there's a show, and we, we have, I think my kids have watched every episode of this show, and we still watch it, right? And part of what makes the show funny is that in the middle, in the most intense part, the two lead characters will literally turn and run screaming. Ah! And you're like, there's something about watching other people that's kind of funny. They should be standing there and being bold, and they just turn around and run and squeal. They have silly, silly runs while they do it. You're like, ah! <laughs> we can, when we're dealing with what God is trying to do in our life, we have to be righteous. We have to be bold as a lion because we're righteous. We can't flee even though no one's pursuing us. We can't be like the myotonic goats that just kind of freak out. And yet, if we're not careful, there might be areas in our life where we're still gripped by fear, where we still have these internal things going on. And even if we can put our hand to do the right thing, our hearts aren't yet quite there. And it's important to God, and I believe that he's going to deal with us today about some of these things. Verse 31, But Joash replied to the hostile, uh, hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's case? Cause? Are you going to try to save him? Whoever fights for him should be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal, saying, Let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. So what does that mean? <laughs> his name got changed. Um, ever did something when you were a kid and you were known by a nickname? I, I won't ask you what nickname you're known by. I, I, won't, I won't ask you, right? Where, where people give a mean nickname or something happens and they call you, you're now known as that. This is what happens to Gideon. He actually goes out, does it, and they say, look, I'm gonna, your name is now going to be Forever, let Baal contend with you. What I, what I really wish and what I really think that they should have said was that getting your, your life's purpose is to go out and fight against Baal. You are supposed to go and make war against the enemy. This is what you're supposed to do, mighty man of valor. You need to go out and actually attack this thing. Um, let's take a look. Keep your place there. Turn to Isaiah chapter 62. You can think of people in the Bible who changed their name. Abram's name was changed to Abraham. The God-breathed part came into Abram and he became Abraham. Sariah came Sarah. Jacob became Israel. Even Solomon when he took the throne. 
they started calling him Jedediah. That's a good old country American name, right? Jedediah. Oftentimes when kings would ascend to the throne, they may change their name. Jehoiakim. Different, different kings that came to the throne. But take a look in Isaiah chapter 62. Let's start in verse 1. Are you there? For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. Names. In the Old Testament, the, the word there is Shem. The Hashem, the very name, your character. Your, what represents who you really are. You're going to be called by a new name. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> Let's read verse 17. Revelation 2, 17. It says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think that's still an interesting way to say that. You have ears, please listen now. In other words, if you have a heart that's inclined towards listening to what God has to say, pay attention. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Wow. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. We don't have time to go into those three pictures there. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. While we're here in Revelation, turn to Revelation 3 and verse 12. It says this, Whom who overcomes I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of, of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down, uh, coming down out of heaven for my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He'll give us our new name, and He will write on us His new name. These new names that we won't know yet, that we can't yet comprehend until we get in that glorified state, but there's a new name, a new definition of who we are. Second Corinthians 5 talks about how we are new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. He's given us a new name. Turn back to Judges with me, please. Gideon got a new name. Because he contended with the forces of the enemy. Throughout the rest of his story, you'll see at times they call him Gideon, and at times they call him Jeroboam. And sometimes they'll say, Jeroboam did this. That was Gideon. They'll put it in parentheses in the, in the text. You're like, okay, I got it. But they'll keep using that for the next several chapters. Let's go back to... Um, I tell you what, before, before we do that, let's go, let's go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. I'll, we'll come back to Judges in just a second. Matthew chapter 10, and let's look in verse 26. <clears throat> it says this, So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Wow. Or hidden that will not be made known. <laughs> There's nothing that is concealed that won't be disclosed. 
not your thoughts, not your actions, not the true attitude of your heart. The Word exposes those things. It divides those things. And in this passage, Jesus Christ Himself is speaking. And He's saying, these things are going to be revealed. You could be like Gideon, try to hide at night and try to do the Lord's will, but these things have to be revealed. Verse 27, What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Wow. My wife saw a video the other day, and it was, uh, I think it was on somebody's Facebook feed or something, and she showed it to me. And it was absolutely gruesome. It was of someone actually being martyred. An uncut, unfiltered version of someone, of multiple people, being beaten, being kicked, being stomped on, and literally thrown into a fire. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. Justin Treister gave a great word on Wednesday night about dead already. Talks about how if we're crucified with Christ, we no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in us. And if we're going to give our lives one day, this is a church who actually sets that as a goal that we have, that each of us would be willing to be martyrs for the kingdom. That is our goal. Because the Bible says, don't be afraid of those who can actually kill you in the flesh. Be worried about the one who can not only separate you, your spirit from your body, but who can separate your spirit from him. What Justin spoke on on Wednesday night was, if we're in the habit of dying daily, if we're in the habit of being crucified daily to Jesus Christ, if we've died to our own thoughts thousands of times a day, over thousands of days, what our hope is is that if it ever came down to it, it would just be one more time of dying to ourself. Justin, Justin just got back from India. Um, one, of the, one of the head ministers there, his name is actually Charles Finney, and he gave his life for the Lord. He was martyred a short few months ago. And my first thought was not how terrible it is. My honestly... My first thought was, Lord, I hope he died well. I hope he died because he's lived a life for you. I hope in death he honored you as well. And from all what we can hear, it was more than an honorable response that he had. Amen. He went down singing God's praises. He went down not renouncing the Lord, but extolling the Lord in everything that he did. Amen. There's worse things than dying, folks. If we're dead already, then we're not worried about the death. We're worried about dying well. If you talk to Navy SEALs, if you talk to true people who are actual warriors in the natural realm, if you talk to guys who've been in Afghanistan, if you talk to the special forces, what do they None of those guys typically are afraid to die. It's an unusual thing when you talk to a man and he's absolutely not afraid to die. He's actually expecting it because of his line of work. But what they want is is to, to have to have an honorable death. They want to go down fighting the bad guy. They don't want to die in some useless, purposeless way. If they're in the middle of the battle, that is a great honor. And that's worldly people. How much more of that for us? I I don't want to get away from this for a second. It's easy enough to to pass by it. 
because most of us are in a situation in our daily lives where death is not, is not a realistic possibility for our faith. It's not a realistic possibility. We, we talk about getting persecuted and we mean somebody made fun of us. Or we didn't get the parking place that we wanted close to the mall. I mean, we're, we're talking about here in the Word. What we're going to find out about Gideon here very shortly is that he did a lot of things well. And maybe there was even a certain amount of peace in his life, but he did not defeat all the foes that he was designed to defeat. And it ended up costing the people of Israel. What enemies do you have left to defeat in your life? What fears do you have? Is it a fear of life and death? Is it a fear that if you actually go out and do this, it will cost you something? Amen. Then let's conquer that. I'm not saying to ignore it. I'm not saying to stuff it down somewhere where you just say the right thing and have a bad heart, where it looks right on the outside, but you've got an issue on the inside. Our goal as Christians should be that we're willing to give our life for this gospel. We're willing to give our life for Jesus Christ. I want you to be able to say amen, and I want you to be able to live that in your heart. So if you can't say amen to that, for the last eight months now, the Lord has been teaching us lessons that basically say, here's the standard, everybody. The last month or so, the Lord's been saying, here's the standard, and let us show you how to get to that standard. We've talked about dead already. We've we showed you and shared past, present, and future with, with the three pastors that were here. We've talked about these different things that have choose, uh, fighting the good fight. We've talked about being distinct. And today God is going to help us to not only defeat the external foes, which is all of our goals, but it's also to defeat the internal woes that we have. Let's turn to Judges chapter 8 now. We were in Judges 6. Let's go to Judges 8. You all still with me? Judges chapter 8 and verse 4. What happened in Judges 7 was what we know about uh, Gideon fighting the Midianites. There was 135,000 Midianites. 135,000. Um, slightly larger than the city of Sugarland. Sugarland like 110, something like that. So an army the size of Sugarland, Texas. 135,000. Gideon started out with 32,000. That's one, two, four and a half. Each person in Gideon's army would have had to defeated at least four, maybe five of the enemy just to stay even. Okay? God said, that's too many. If anybody's afraid, tell them to go home. 22,000 leave. So now we have 10,000 versus 135,000. So now it's one to 13 and a half. So each one of Gideon's people would have to defeat... 13 to 14 bad guys just to survive or they get wiped out. God said, that's still too many. And then he had this incredible thing of whether you're going to put your face down in the river to drink or you're going to bring water up to your mouth. Okay, 9,700 out of the 10,000 go away. There's 300 left. So now we have one versus 450 bad guys. God's like, all right, that's about right. Now you're in the ballpark of where I want you to be. When you get in a situation and the, in the, in the, it feels overwhelming to you, all right, God, this is impossible. Uh, the amount of money that I need to make in this next season, how I'm going to pay the next bills, where we're going to go, whether this adoption is going to come through or not, 
a new business that I'm trying to start, all these things. It's just, I, I, it might as well be 450 people per man because we just can't do it. And God goes, yep. Now we're just about in the right spot. Gideon, you guys know what happens. He defeats the enemy. This is right after that's taken place, okay? So Judges 8 and verse 4. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted. Everybody say exhausted. Come on, this church knows what it's like to be exhausted, don't you? Come on. Oh, yeah. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit. Come on now. Some of y'all need to underline that in your Bible. But I'm exhausted. As long as you're keeping up the pursuit, we're okay. They came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of uh, Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So what is Gideon doing? He's going after till the last enemy is put under his feet. Yes? He defeated the 135,000, but some took off. You know what happens is all these guys start actually start fighting each other. Gideon doesn't lose a man. He's got all 300 there, and now they're chasing a part of the army that's gone away. And so he comes by some people who are supposed to be able to help him. Hey, man, we're hungry. We're exhausted. We've been battling. We haven't had time to eat. Not a, there's not a you know, Starbucks out here. There's not a, a, a Whataburger where we all just you know, stopped in for a quick meal and kept chasing them. We're hungry because we're battling and stuff, right? But the officials of Succoth said, do, not, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Because uh, we're doing you a favor? Because we're clearing out all the bad guys? Because we're hungry and it'd just be nice? We're only 300 of us. It's not like there's 135,000 that we're asking you to feed. Can you help some brothers out? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Which, by the way, he does. All right, you're not going to help me? Hey, folks, you don't have to worry about it. If, if someone is not doing right by you, would you trust that God will take care of them? Amen. Sometimes we get all tied up trying to go, but what about them, God? But they're doing it wrong. You don't worry about that. You don't worry about that. God will see and he will take care of it. Either they will fall into the hands of a merciful God and repent, and then you go, well, Amen. Or if they don't, he will bring divine retribution to them. You think that the God of all creation doesn't see what's happening to you? Oh, or do we just forget when everything gets going? The boss who doesn't treat you right. The, the neighbor who's, who, who has ill will to you. The, the situation that seems to kind of conquer you. You don't worry about the divine retribution because that part will come. You don't leave the fight. You don't leave the pursuit. He's still in hot pursuit and he's like, I'm going to... Okay, I ain't got time to deal with you now, but I'm going to come back and take care of you. Whoosh, he keeps going. Verse 8, he went up from there to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. <laughs> uh, note to self, <laughs> when I got done with this group of bad guys, I'm coming and I'm tearing the roof off the sucker. Right? <laughs> we'll come in and we're going to deal with that too. Can I encourage you that it pleases the Lord that you don't leave stones unturned? I am good as a person about getting fixated on something and being very forward-driven. 
The part of this story that I relate to is he just kept going. I can do that. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't ignore the things that he couldn't get to at that moment. He didn't just go away and he went, okay, fine, out of sight, out of mind. There were these things that were lying around that he came back and he actually accomplished exactly what he said he was going to do. He just, what I'm not good at sometimes is I'll push it to the side and then I forget about it. That is not a way that my natural wiring is not pleasing. To, I'm not pleasing to the Lord in that. Because I keep going forward and I have to take care of every situation that He puts in my way. If it's righteousness, then I want to bless people. If it's somebody that needs correction, that's what I'm supposed to do. If it's teaching, if it's rebuking, if it's correcting, whatever it is, I have to do those things along the way and so do you. Verse 10, Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men. Hey, by the way, how many men did Gideon have? 300. <laughs> this is still an army of 15,000, by the way. They're cha- the, can you see this in your mind? The 300. <laughs> 15,000. Ah! Like, this is great. They're still afraid of these little small band of men. They're going out and they're running away from them until they get to these leaders, the kings of Midian. Now, Zeban and Zalmunna were in Kekor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. That's how I figured out that there was 135, by the way. <laughs> I put those two numbers together, right? Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Nabah and Jogbedeth and fell, uh, fell upon the unsuspecting army. Yeah, he did. The 300 men, they, they fell upon the unsuspecting army. Well, I would have loved to have seen that. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but Gideon pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. What? They're still outnumbered a ton. And they take care of the entire army. They bring back the two kings. Verse 13. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Herez. He caught a young man of uh, Succoth and questioned him. And the young man wrote down oh, the names of the 70 officials of Succoth. So he went back and took care of them. Let's skip down to verse 16. He took the uh, elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound nice. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. There was righteous judgment that came upon all of them. Take a look at verse 18. Then he asked Zeban Zalmunna, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered. Each one of them with the bearing of a prince. This is not a compliment. They're not trying to be nice to them to see if they can get out of this. You're going to find that out in a second because they actually kind of insult them in the next, very next statement. They were just making a statement that that guy who was hiding in the wine press is now walking around like a prince. He's walking around in authority because he is operating the way God is telling him to operate. Gideon replied, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, Kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. And this is where they are insulting him. Verse 21, Zeba and Zemunah said, Come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. They're taunting him. They're captives. Isn't it just like the enemy? They're about to lose and they're still taunting. 
even the peril of death will not keep their arrogance from being seen in every word that, that spews from their mouth. Even when you're in a victorious situation you're about to defeat the enemy, do not be surprised if it sounds like he's the one in charge. He's going to be arrogant. He's going to, he's going to be taunting you even as you're being victorious until you put the boot on his neck, until under your foot is his head crushed. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camel's necks. Come here, Gabe. So what we have here is we have, at first, Gideon doing something and... Step down. Okay. Um, (laughs) I try not to feed him, but he keeps growing. So the very first thing God deals with Gideon, he immediately works on his family, and then Gideon becomes a savior to the nation. One life, one family, one nation. His name gets changed. And you know what he does here that he's trying to do, but it doesn't, he doesn't get accomplished? Is he's trying to say, okay, oldest son, what I want you to do is kill the kings. Now, and that may sound, did Gideon not want to do it? Was he too tired to pick up a sword? What I see in this is he said, you need to learn how. This is the same story in Joshua, where Joshua had the five kings. He put them in the, in the cave. He brings them out and makes every man in the entire army walk by and put their foot on the neck of the enemy. All five kings. So you know what it feels like to be victorious over the enemy. You know, this is the picture I want you to remember for the rest of your life, that you, this is your place. You put your enemy down and under your foot, and when you have them under your foot, you don't let them back up. There is no mercy for those type of things because it's a righteous standard that will not put up with the way the world does things, and you crush it. So what he's trying to do is say, hey, hey, son, I want you to go out and kill them. Grab your sword and go ahead and take care of them. Go ahead. But what happens here is that his his son is, is intimidated. And then they start mocking him, and Gideon goes ahead and steps in and does the deed, right? This is going to be a problem later on. Gideon had the right idea, but he didn't go after this the way he should have. We're going to see in a minute exactly what it causes. There might be something important in us having godliness not only in our lives, but handing it down to the next generation. If I don't, It pains me to say this. If I don't do this, then I disqualify myself from this position. I'm telling you because we're family. And I'm not going to hide behind it. If you can't see God working in my kids, then I need to get it right or I should step away from being a pastor. That is the standard that the Word says, and I'm not allowed to change it because I feel uncomfortable saying it. It's true. What about you? It is the standard that we have is that our kids are going to reflect the glory. And what I would have loved to see in this situation is that the young man took the sword and killed the kings and was victorious. That's what I expect out of this one. I expect him. I've seen Gabe and Olivia lay their hands on people and watch the sick recover. There's still a lot for them to grow. There's a long way for them to go. But they're advancing towards this. 
How are you advancing? How is your family advancing? You guys, you, our lives are on display. We don't hide anything from you. We have strengths and we have weaknesses. This is a standard that God has is that we're supposed to transmit it. If you are, if you are at an age where the kids are already gone, then who are you helping to transmit it to? It's the idea that you're transmitting it to the next generation. It's the, it's the idea that the fathers are teaching the young men and the young men are, are being an example to the children. There is this example where it's always supposed to be handing down somebody. Well, I, the Lord hasn't blessed me with kids. Well, amen. Then who are you going to help? Who, who are you going to be transmitting this to so that it doesn't stop with you? Who's next in the line? I have a physical family that should be the first on my list. Second, I have a spiritual family that is, that is very close after that. I'm always thinking about imparting to him. Gabe, let's talk when we're riding around. Dad, uh, Brenton and I were thinking about this and we were reading this scripture and we were wondering about traffic laws. <laughs> Weren't you? I love it. They're like, okay, so the scripture says this. I can assure you I wasn't doing this at 15 and 16. What does the Bible have to say about traffic laws? <laughs> I'm like... Oh my gosh, I love this. Oh my gosh, you're so much better than me. Keep it up. You might make it. You know? I don't know, maybe. Uh, I don't know why I'm talking like that, but it's it just exciting. Um, got all excited, my voice went up. I don't know. Uh, but we're driving around, and, and they're, they're, you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to frame their entire life around the scripture. I, I love when I get to talk and I hear these guys. When, when these guys come over to the house and I'm hearing them talk, they're young. Sometimes they make some pretty bonehead, bonehead, bonehead decisions. <laughs> but they're growing. Yeah. This is what you should be doing. Yeah. And Gideon is trying to do here. <clears throat> Abraham was chosen because he would lead his family. There's no greater honor. If you've done a good job, I commend you. If you haven't done a good job, it's not over. Don't let that internal woe about what you have or haven't done for your family cause you to stop and go, well, I haven't done a very good job. Well, how about from today forward? How about you let the Lord make up for lost time? How about you cry out to God and say, Lord, there are some things that I did not do very well at all. I need you to make up for this. I need you not, Lord, you may count it against me, but don't count it against them. Lord, what can we do? What can we salvage? Because you're a God who can cause dead things to come to life, as Pastor Matt said during worship. Amen? Amen. This should be encouraging to you. This should not be depressing to you. Verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. Hey, nice. Get some respect. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Amen. Yeah, man. That's the right answer. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. So they had taken, <laughs> they had taken gold earrings, they had taken jewelry from the Midianites. They were plundering them, right? Hey, look. I mean, I did just defeat a whole army of 135,000 people pretty much by myself. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to lead you. The Lord is going to lead you. But please make donations too. 
right? They just laid out a garment and they started throwing gold. It was somewhere between 45 and 50 pounds of gold that they collected. You know, I mean, I don't want to rule over you. I, I would like to be compensated appropriately, right? Then they answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment. And each man threw a ring from his plunder into it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, somewhere between 43 and 50 pounds, not counting the ornaments, the pennants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on the camels' necks. Listen to this. Gideon made the gold into an ephod. An ephod is a priestly garment. He made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Oprah in his town. How do you like this next sentence? All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Wait a minute. This story is supposed to end well, right? I mean, he, with 300 people, he routed an army of 135,000 people. He filled up, more than filled up a football stadium and took a group that could fit in this room and beat them all. That's incredible. That is mind-blowing. And then he felt entitled to something that came back his way. Are, you, are we feeling entitled? Do you do something good for the Lord and then you, you need a reward? Do you do really good reading your Bible and then you want to go to a movie to celebrate? Okay, maybe that one's kind of silly. Do you feel like there's a natural recompense that should come your way every time you do something well? That's immaturity. I know we're in a generation uh, that wants to give you trophies for showing up. I get it. It's terrible. But the problem isn't this generation that wants to have all these participation awards. You were, so, you were terrible on our team, but here's a trophy. Well, we want to build up their self-esteem. Yeah, we don't need to build up the flesh. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you, we don't need any help building up the flesh. But you know what the problem is? It's not the generation so much as the heart of the people that says, well, this makes sense. I mean, if you work for the Lord, I mean, if you do something good, if you go out and have a great baptism that's never been done, well, how are we going to celebrate? In my family growing up, we were, um, we were dirt poor. We were below the poverty line. People would sometimes come by and drop off food at our doors that I didn't know as a kid. I'm like, oh, <laughs> there's a whole box full of food. This is great. Oh, yeah, I didn't realize that people from the church knew and had to help us out or we, wasn't gonna, we weren't going to eat that week. But going through, so the idea is when things would go really well, you know what we got to do? We got to go out to a restaurant. And usually for our family, it was really like McDonald's. And if it was really, 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 really special, it was Pizza Hut. You know. It, I mean, we were like, we had to save up to go to, to go to Pizza Hut. You know what I find is me as an adult? Is I like to be rewarded by going out to eat. Hey, we've, we've, we've been working good and we're staying on budget, so you know what we're going to do? We're going to go splurge and we're going to go out to eat. Huh. It's just, it's just going out to eat. Until I expect it. 
until I expect it for every time that I do something right that I'm going to get immediately rewarded. A sign of maturity is that we can delay our self-gratification. I did something right, and you know what? It's just good enough. Lord, you've already blessed me so much. If you never give me another thing in my life, that you'll not give me riches nor poverty, Lord, if you just give me just enough, it's going to be completely sufficient, and I will love you and serve you just as hard. If I don't get rewarded, if nobody pats me on the back, if I don't get encouragement from such and such, I'm going to trust that you will be happy with me, and that's going to be enough. Because what happened to Gideon was he took the goal. I mean... I mean, he did just defeat an army, right? That's reasonable. But what it did for Gideon was it set up the wrong expectations in his own heart. He defeated an external foe, but he lost to an internal woe. He lost. It became a snare, a trap. The little box with the little food in it, and you wait till the animal comes in, and you pull it, and it traps him. A snare, the gold ephod that he took from the people who willingly gave it. He didn't sneak, he didn't trick them. He got it honestly. And it became a snare in his life. Are there snares that you have? Are there some snares that are are trapping you up and they look right and they feel right because they feel just? I feel justified in this. Well, maybe your feelings are wrong. Maybe it's becoming a snare to you and you don't even know it. Maybe the things that you're holding on to, God's saying, you need to get rid of it all. He did right for half of it. I don't even want to lead you nor my son. Let the Lord lead you. And this is an important part. We have to deal with the internal part. Look what happens. Verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again during Gideon's lifetime. The land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Looks like a happy ending, yeah? It was peace for 40 years. By the way, you know what happened before Gideon? There was 40 years of peace because of what Deborah did. And then they fell into Midian's hand for seven years. So the cycle is continuing on. So they were unfaithful to the Lord. God raises up someone to help them. When that person is gone, immediately they fall back into what they really were. It's almost not really a cycle. It's somebody who rises up, helps them be victorious, and then they go back to right where they were. This is what happens here. So this is 47 years after Deborah. The land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Verse 29, Jerobeel, son of Joash, that's Gideon, by the way, went back home to live. So what do you do after you finish doing what God tells you to do? What next? Gideon decided it was nice to go back and get comfortable somewhere. I'm just going to go home. I've been doing a lot of work lately. I mean, I'm tired. I'm just going to go home and relax. I'm reminded of, of what it says about King David. In the springtime when kings are supposed to go off to war, you know where he was? Not at war. He put himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. He went back home to live. Verse 30, he had 70 sons of his own. Well, I guess we know what he did. For he had many wives. He was building his family. His concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son who named him, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age. Everybody say good old age. It didn't even even waste time to tell you how old that was. Just good old age. Good old man. And he was buried in the tomb of his father Joash and Oprah of the Abizrites. Listen to this. No sooner had Gideon died 
Then the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. Wow. They set up Baal Perith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all of their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good things that he had done for them. You know why I think they were so quick to go back to it? One, it was in their hearts as a group of people. That's true. Two, they saw the same idolatry in Gideon's life. They saw the same idolatry there. He had a golden ephod. Well, I mean, at least it was a religious symbol, right? It was still an idol. And it was a snare for Gideon and his family. And apparently, it also became a snare for the whole country. One life, one family, one nation, but they were worshiping an idol. And so why is that a big deal? It was a very small jump from them worshiping at the golden ephod on Gideon's property to just worshiping something that had no... They weren't even pretending like it was religious anymore. They just went to a foreign god. There's an issue. There's an issue when we measure internal success using external accomplishments. There's an issue when we try to measure internal success by using external accomplishments. It's no different than Adam and Eve in the garden. They sin, what do they try to do? They immediately try to cover up with fig leaves. We always try to cover up. Fig leaves and figs in the Bible, fig trees come to represent religion. It's known throughout the Bible. If you, if you study it out all the way through, anytime they talk about a fig, a fig tree or a fig leaf, it hints back. It's telling you a story within the story that says, hey, by the way, this is meaning religion. So what do Adam and Eve do? They sin, and what do they run to? They don't run to God. They run to religion to cover them. But what's the only thing they can actually cover Adam and Eve? An animal had to be sacrificed. An animal had to die. There had to be bloodshed to cover them. They had to get some type of animal skin to cover them, not their own fig leaves that they sewed together. What a beautiful picture, right? You may not realize it right here at the beginning of the story, but it's the beginning of the whole Bible. It's saying you can't run to religion. You've got to have some type of sacrifice. There's got to be a bloodletting for this thing to work out properly. A few scriptures in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 15. Matthew seven fifteen says this, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. <laughs> what a simple statement that will clear out and help you with a lot of your theological problems. By their fruit you will recognize them. This is the principle of the kingdom. What is the fruit in your life showing? Oh, well, he's a good guy. What is the fruit that's coming from his life? Is it godly or is it not? Yes or no? Well, but but he means well. Really, does he? What is the fruit like? I'm not saying you won't have difficulty, but I'm saying that the fruit from your life will be godly if that's really what your heart is. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. Every good tree. 
Not some of the good trees, not most of the good trees. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. It seems so simplistic, right? You're like, why is the Bible, the most powerful book ever written, telling you a good tree won't produce bad fruit? (laughs) Because in real life, it's not as clear as that. You don't walk up to it and have a, someone has a big G for God, like, I'm a good tree. You go, what is this? I, I, this guy's a nice guy. I taught at a private school for 12 years. Taught and then became a principal of. You know what I learned there? Is that people are willing to have good kids rather than godly kids. That's what I learned. As long as the kid was articulate and polite many of the people there presumed that they were Christians. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Do you, know what they, do you know what they do? Do you know that there's no good fruit coming from them? And so when I would be honest with them and say, hey, I can't believe that you guys are doing that. You know about that? Yeah, it's obvious. The works of the sinful nature are obvious. It helped learn, it helped uh, ingrain something in me that I wanted to have godly kids more than I wanted to have good kids. Sounds weird to say, right? Because I figure the godly will take care of the good, but the other doesn't, doesn't work out that way. Of course, I want my kids to be well behaved. Of course, I do. But I won't take that in exchange for ha- them having pure hearts. If, if me, as a bad parent, compared to how good God is to us, If I want that for my kids, how much more do you think God wants that from us? He wants pure fruit coming from us. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So clear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who says the will of my Father. No, that's not what it says, right? I'm just... Just seeing if you're awake. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The full will of the Father. You're beating the external foes and you're overcoming the internal woes. This is how this works. Don't exchange one for the other. Don't tell me how victorious you are on the inside if no external foes are falling. Don't try to convince me how great and wonderful you are by showing me the list of all the external foes that you've you've defeated either. We want both for you here. Of course we want you to defeat the external foes. Of course we do. How silly. And it's just as important that you're defeating all the fears, all the insecurities, all the anger, all the works of the sinful nature, all the fleshly things, all those things that are actually keeping you from really being successful in defeating the foe. Because you can be like Gideon and win one of the most incredible battles in the Bible. Bam! You brought 40 years of peace Woo! And your family was snared by a golden ephod because you felt entitled to a reward that truthfully wasn't yours to have. Goodness gracious. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 18. <clears throat> 
Luke 10, 18 says this. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Oops. I have given you authority. Everybody say authority. authority. To trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Everybody say all the power. All the power. God has given you authority to overcome all of the power. The things that you can see, the things that everybody else can see, and the things that are inside that no one will ever talk to you about. Because they're just too deep, and they're too pressed down, and they're too far away, and they're too embarrassing to talk about. He's given you all power to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. I'm going to rephrase this based on the, the sermon title, right? Do not rejoice when you defeat the external foes. When we were in Africa a few weeks ago and got to lay hands on someone and watch demons leave the man's body. Truth is, is we kept praying and demons kept coming out. It wasn't just a singular event. We are like, wow, this is interesting. I thought of this scripture. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Why would you think that God would tell us that? Baj, I mean, you were there. That was, that was a pretty incredible night. Baj is standing right next to us. We're all laying hands on this guy, hand right on his chest. He's doing what he's doing, and we're just like, amen. We're watching. We're, we're the ones that are victorious. There's a woman off to the side. I've, I probably shared this with you already. She stands up and starts screaming that she wants the power, either the power of the demon or the demon that just came out of that guy to come into her. I've never seen such a thing in all, in all my life. I was like, whoa, I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> We're busy right here. Hey, somebody else go take care of that lady. She's wanting the power, but we're the ones being victorious. We're the ones casting the demons out. I was like, how weird are you? You're just power hungry? Oh, you've got something that's already going on. Well, you need some demons cast out too. So I'm in there in that moment and we are the ones being victorious. I look over at my daughter and I was like, this is not someone to be afraid of because we are the ones that have all authority and all power to defeat this guy. Defeat the, the, the spiritual forces at work in him. What does the Bible say? I shouldn't even be particularly happy about that. That should just be normal. I don't have to rejoice and get all excited about the demons coming out. Rather, I'm going to rejoice that my name is written in heaven. Amen. <laughs> Why? Maybe it's that I'm not even supposed to particularly celebrate the external. I'm supposed to celebrate the internal victories that God has given me. I'm more than a conqueror. Well, how can I know? You know how you can be confident that you've become a believer? How about you get filled with the Holy Spirit? How about you walk in that and that acts as a deposit guarantee? It's a sign that He's with you. Unless, of course, He's not. How, how about you allow what's going on on the inside and how He's washing you? And feel, how about you celebrate that? This is what the Scripture says. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to wrap up here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's start in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. <laughs> Makes me want to lean in just seeing the writing of that. Hey, listen. Hey, I got something to tell you. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. We're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Changed. Not vanish, but changed. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must close itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. (laughs) When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Everybody say, say, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives you the victory in every area of your life. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. You should be feeling the resoluteness of this passage. It should do something inside of you. Therefore, had a, a pastor when I was a kid, I remember, and he would say, when, there, when it says therefore, you've got to look to see what is there for. Right? Therefore, understanding that he is going to change us, that death is swallowed up in victory, therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I have many other scriptures. We're going to talk about how the the truth of what's in our heart, that internal struggle. But let's turn to First John chapter five as our final verse for the for today. We prayed on Wednesday night and we prayed that the Lord would search our hearts. He would test us and try us and see if there would be any wicked way within us. This is really kind of an extension of that thought if you think about it. Lord, we want to not only be victorious in all the external things, we want to be victorious in watching people come to salvation. This is true. We want to be victorious in the people here in this room, be able to lay hands on the sick and then recover. This is what we want. Lord, we want to see uh, us lay hands on people and watch demons leave them. We want to see people come into a saving knowledge of you. We want to see people baptized in your Holy Spirit. That's what we want to accomplish as a church. This is what we want to do. And those are all the easy, fun parts because they're external and they're seen and they're corporate. I also want us to have internal victories that say, I was once afraid and now I'm not. I was once shaken by everything that came along, and now I can stand firm and be immovable in what God is telling me to do. I was once timid in my own personality and in my own self, but now there's something that when I stand in His righteousness, I am bold like a lion. Do you ever see a lion backing down from anything? Ever? That's why they're called what? The king of the jungle. Everyone else backs down from them. They roar and things get in order. How is your roar? Do you have a spiritual roar that you can stand up and go, God is with me. This is righteousness. You can take my life if you want and this is still what's right. I'm going to go after the enemy until they're all done even if I am exhausted. 
Even if I am hungry, I'm going to go after because this is what's right. I can overcome because of it. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. I just love these scriptures that give us the everything and everyone. Makes it simple to understand. Our culture wants to excuse us all. Hey, these are good words, but they don't apply to me. Nope, they apply to you and they apply to me. Verse 2, this is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out His commands. When I have my internal part right, when I am loving God and loving His commands and obeying Him, you know what it's easy for me to do? Love you. It's easy. I have to stop myself from weeping when I pray over you guys. It's, it's pitiful. And it's great. I mean, I think about you. I drive around, I'm like, oh, I wonder how such and such is doing. Oh, I hope, I hope that new business venture is going good. Oh, I hope, I know, Lord, they're wanting to have kids. Lord, would you, would you bless them? Would you help them? I'm, I'm just I'm thinking about this as I drive around every day, all day. It's easy. Verse 3, this is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. Everybody say they're not burdensome. So if you are obeying God with a burdensome heart, you are winning in an external way and losing in an internal way. Yes? Don't lose me right here at the end. That was good. I needed to hear that. This is the love for God, to obey His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. If you're walking around and you're feeling uh, like it's burdensome, you know what that's going to cause? It's going to cause you to be just like Gideon and expect some return for your labor. It's going to put you in the wrong place. Well, I mean, I'm working as hard as I can. I just wish somebody would appreciate me around this place. We love you. Those who love God and obey His commandments will love you unfettered. You know what you can't do is walk around like this thing is burdensome to you. In the Old Testament, when they made, when they were building the, t- the, tab- uh, the temple, you know what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to cut the rocks, the parts that were supposed to be cut, away at the rock quarry. You know why? Because they didn't want the sound of labor in God's presence. You know what the priests were supposed to wear? They were supposed to wear a linen undergarment. You know why? I'm going to put it in very common uh, modern day terms. You shouldn't see the priest sweat. It's not because the priest wasn't working. It's because the priest represented God. I had someone at a previous church tell me, they're like, oh, Pastor Wade, you are so hardworking. And and the Lord convicted me. Because I was carrying out my job in a way that must have... And he meant nothing by it, and the Lord taught me something with it. Y'all understand this? He was being sweet. He, he, was, he was a hard-working man. He was in construction, and he thought that I worked as hard as he did. But what the Lord convicted me on was that I'm, I, I was, not must have been, I was doing it in a way that appeared burdensome. I was carrying out the commands of the Lord, but I was... I had an air about me that made it look like carrying out God's commands were burdensome. And I wept and I cried and I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. 
I have not fulfilled your word properly. Would you please forgive me? And I didn't go back to the guy because how do you say, hey, you, were, you complimented me and it broke my heart. <laughs> no, it should have, the way that I was doing it. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Wait a minute. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. If you're really born of God, your destiny is overcoming the world. Just because I, you don't see it today doesn't mean it's not going to happen. You're, the, only thing that this, the only way that this can work out, God is either true or he's not. He's either truthful or he's a liar. The word of God is either right or it is wrong. There's nothing in between. If the Bible says, for everyone born of God overcomes the world, what does that mean for you? It means if you're born of God, you're going to overcome the world, both externally and internally. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Even when you can't see it, you trust in His Word more than how you feel. Even when you can't see it, even when you did the right thing externally and He, he quickens you about something internal, you fall on your face and say, Lord, that was a failure. Everybody else thinks that's a success and I know that it was a failure because you just told me. Would you help me? And He does. He rushes in. Who is that that overcomes the world? Only He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Wow. Can you guys stand with me?